The, the question, what does it mean to be a Christian, comes to its, its, its very finest point. Like, like the absolute sum base zero place um, in this question that Jesus poses to Peter at Caesarea Philippi. We're going to read it in just a couple of minutes. When Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Um, the Apostle Paul broadens it a little bit in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, without the resurrection, everything we believe is useless. Like, we have no hope or nothing. But of course, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus finds its finest point in who is he? Who is he? Some say this, others say that. But, but each one of us here this morning, one day will stand before God on the other side of death. And your answer to this question here will eternally alter your destination there. Who is Jesus? And what you're able to confess about him, what are you able to confess about Jesus? Um, who you confess Christ to be will change your world. Not just there, but it will change your world here as well. So I'm going to briefly address three questions uh, that, that, that almost have to be asked, beg to be asked as we read this text. The first is, what's in a name? Like, what does it really mean for us to name Jesus? The second is, what's in a confession? Uh, what is the power of our words and that which we confess together? And then thirdly, I'll ask you just a very personal question, and that is, what is your name? What is your name? Because it changes when we encounter Jesus. So we're going to read together from Matthew chapter 16. Why don't we stand one more time? It will be on the screen. If you're looking it up digitally, I'm in the New International Version. Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. But this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. May he help us understand it and live out of it this morning. You may be seated. We've been working our way through Matthew's gospel. This morning we're kind of starting a new series. It's going to be our, our summer series. We're calling it Holidays and Road Trips, Journeying with Jesus. 
Um, this passage marks the conclusion of Jesus' Galilean ministry, uh, the ministry that was up and around the Sea of Galilee. He's been kind of keeping a distance from Jerusalem, and after this experience at Caesarea Philippi, um, all of the remainder of the Gospel of Matthew and the other Gospels likewise uh, have Jesus turning and facing Jerusalem and moving toward Jerusalem, which means to move toward the cross, to move toward what will be his death, his burial, and resurrection. That's some road trip to go on. That's some road trip to go on with Jesus, and that's where we want to go this summer. But before Jesus heads to Jerusalem, he, he turns the other way and goes in the exact opposite direction direction, and he takes his disciples on what maybe could be considered another holiday, a short trip north of the Sea of Galilee, about 50, 60 kilometers, to the region of Caesarea Philippi. I've got a map here to kind of show you. Uh, here's the Sea of Galilee down here where we've been spending a lot of time. Jesus has been back and forth across the lake, walks on the water, up the mountain, down the mountain. Last week we looked at him going up to the region of Tyre and Sidon, probably the only occasion when he left uh, Israel proper um, in order to encounter that Canaanite woman that we talked about last Sunday. Comes back, he's down here, goes down to the ten cities, the, the uh, Decapolis, um, feeds 4,000 people, uh, comes back up here and, and, and again encounters Pharisees who come and contest him. In fact, I think it's maybe the Sadducees there. Not enough hands to hold the books in front of me. Um, and then he takes his, his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. This is a city that was rebuilt by Herod, uh, uh, by Herod Philip um, in honor of Caesar Augustus. Caesarea Philippi is where the name comes from. But it's a historic region uh, that was known as Banias, where, where just subsequent generations of, of worshipers, pagan worshipers, had created sort of idol-worshiping spaces there. I've got a, a picture here of the space. It's this incredible um, place where, where water flows out of here. There have been times in history when it just jettisoned out of there in a cataract of water. And it was just a powerful and majestic place. It's beautiful. You make your way kind of north uh, into this region of, of Israel today, and, and it becomes a little more lush, a little less arid, and a little cooler. You're in the foothills of Mount Hermon, and uh, it's, really, it's really a lovely place to be. Um, in the time of Jesus, this was a, a shrine to the god Pan, the Greek god Pan. If you go to the next slide, um, there were these little kind of nooks in the rock, little shelves. The lights don't help us here, but there's little kind of niches cut out right there. There's one right there where they would place idols in those spaces and come and worship in, these, uh, in this area. And this is the area where Jesus has brought his disciples for what is going to be a test for these men. What do others say about me? And and then what do you say about me? This is, Jesus is making some assessments here. And we know that throughout the pages of history, names matter. Um, God's name matters. There are a number of names for, for Yahweh, uh, which, which would be El something. El being God, and then something. El Shaddai, El Elyon. And, and each one is a description of God. It's a description of his, his character. Uh, his, his, his compassion, his mercy, his kindness, his long-suffering after us. Uh, descriptions of his power. Uh, he is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. Um, the names matter um, throughout the pages of history. 
The disciples now have been with Jesus for about a couple of years by the time we get to Matthew chapter 16. And it's time for, for this critical question concerning Jesus to be solidified in their thinking. What name do others give to me, Jesus asks. And the responses are interesting because uh, there's an accurate response and then there's an adequate response. Those are two different things. It can be accurate but not sufficient to be adequate, not complete, not comprehensive. And so some of these, we've heard these before, Jesus is a prophet, commonly understood, much confusion around it, Uh, but maybe he's like Elijah, who was this powerful prophet who did incredible miracles. Well, understandable, the parallels, Jesus' ministry. Maybe he's Jeremiah coming again. I mean, Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He he begged Judah to respond to God rather than face God's judgment. And you hear the the words, the teachings of Jesus, and you say, well, I can kind of get where he's coming from that. Often he was correcting, he was pleading with people uh, to respond. Jesus, a prophet. Um, This view is present today, right? There'll be those who say, yeah, you know, Jesus was a good prophet. Sixth century, Muhammad, in writing the Quran, uh, came to this conclusion that Jesus was a prophet. And we would say, well, that is accurate, but not adequate. It's not sufficient to fully describe who Jesus is, prophet. Close cousin to Jesus is a great teacher. There were many in that day who saw Jesus as a great teacher. They, they stood in awe with the, at the authority with which he, he spoke. I have a friend who's Jehovah's Witness, and this would be a point where we, we differ. We've had some really interesting and, and somewhat intense conversations on this point because the Watchtower divides uh, the, 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 the Trinity, the Christian understanding of the Trinity, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, each being a, a, a manifestation of God, um, distinct and yet thorough in its, in its representation of who God is. Uh, divide them into Father, Son, Holy Spirit separately, uh, not recognizing divinity as part of the work of the Son or the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, honoring Jesus as a prophet, Son of God, um, using that term, Son of God, in a way that you and I are sons or daughters of God. Accurate, but not adequate. Um, and we say, well, is that statement that Pastor Terry just made, is that true? Like, is this close enough? Are these confessions close enough to be adequate? And Matthew's been trying to help us get at this throughout his gospel. Let me just give you kind of a quick survey of the things that Matthew has been calling to our attention as we've worked our way through this gospel. Matthew's been saying things like, um, Matthew chapter 1, Jesus comes from the pedigree, the family tree of King David meaning he is a king. He has come with kingly pedigree. In fact, the Persian magi, the wise men, came and worshipped the king of the Jews. We've come seeking him to worship him who is king of the Jews. Uh, Matthew's been presenting Jesus as one who works miracles with an authority that that is even beyond comparison with Elijah and Elisha, these great prophets of the Old Testament. People were amazed by Jesus. 
Matthew's been presenting Jesus as one who is taught with just unprecedented authority. Uh, But beyond the the authority with which he speaks, the command with which he articulated truth, people were scandalized because Jesus would say the kinds of things that only God could possibly say. Like no human being can speak that way without being guilty of blasphemy. Religious leaders got this, right? We, we see the record throughout the Gospels where they, they heard what Jesus said and said that can't be. Refused to acknowledge what it pointed to and so they plotted for his execution. They plotted to murder him. Who do others say I am? Jesus questioned the disciples. And then he moves into the next question, which is the critical question. What about you? Who do you say I am? And this is not a new question for the disciples. I mean, you don't sign up to follow a rabbi to become their student without asking critical questions about who they are. And constantly, the disciples have been amazed. I mean, you don't don't find yourself in a boat that's sinking, Jesus asleep at the back, crying out, saying, Lord, don't you care? We're going to drown. And he stands and says, little faith, be calm. Who is this man? Who does that? You know, you don't find yourself in, in the boat the next time, kind of crossing the lake against these contrary winds, and Jesus comes walking on the water to you. He gets in the boat, winds are calm. And the text says they worshipped him. I mean, they're, they're getting this. Like, this is, not, this is not a foreign question to them, but it's, it's come to be time that they would articulate who is Jesus. Who is Jesus? Will you speak it out loud? And we'll speak in, talk in a minute about why that out loud confession is there. I've, I've wondered sometimes, you know, if Jesus had been a contemporary teacher, you know, if he'd been teaching in one of our seminaries or universities or something like that, um, would Jesus have done it any differently? Like contemporary teachers typically will give you a syllabus for the course. Here's the course. This is what we're going to cover. Um, this is where we're going to... And by the time you get to the end of this course, you are going to be able to articulate X, Y, and Z. Now, you'll be able to say that, you know, Jesus is the uh, Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's what Peter says here, right? Wouldn't that be the logical way? To, Jesus does not have that method of teaching. Jesus invited these guys to begin, come and follow me. Come and journey with me. Make some observations as we go along, would you? Oh, by the way, would you help me with this? Um, I, I'm going to send you out and have you do some of the things that I've been doing. Where you go? Where you go? Come back and report to me. Tell me how it's going. Um, All of this has transpired, and yet they really haven't come to the place where Jesus presses them to say, okay, test time. Who am I? I just hear Jeopardy theme there. Um, Who am I? Jesus has been teaching them by discovery, inviting them to come to conclusion, but before he turns to Jerusalem, He needed to hear it stated out loud in a confession. And perhaps perhaps they were even standing within a view, the view of the shrine at Banias, Caesarea Philippi. Who do others say I am? Okay, we've we've got this contrast 
offered by the geography. In this place where people worship, if we were downtown Calgary, and Jesus asked this question, perhaps he'd be standing amongst the office towers, you know, these, these things that have been constructed so that commerce can happen, and, and sometimes commerce becomes the God we worship. Sometimes it's all about whether oil flows or whether money flows or whether... In the context of that which is worshipped, who do others say I am? Prophet, teacher, Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah. Um, who do you say I am? And Peter once again becomes the spokesperson for the other disciples. And, and he speaks it out loud. He says, you are the Messiah. Now we don't have time this morning to kind of thoroughly review what that word meant. But it, it's an incredibly loaded term. The idea that God's rescuer would come addressing the problem of sin in our world goes right back to the very beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. But, but the idea of the Messiah and that title doesn't really get formed until you get into the Hebrew prophets. And that's when this expectation becomes articulated that the deliverer is going to come, the, the servant of the Most High God will come and do his bidding. Um, this messianic expectation builds. And if you read some of the extra-biblical literature that was written by Hebrew scholars around that time, you go into the, the findings of the Qumran community and the Qumran caves around the Dead Sea, the expectation is there. It's evident that they were waiting for God's rescuer to come. And Peter now is the first disciple to actually speak it out loud, at least on record. You are the Messiah. And then he goes on. Because Messiah has this, this kind of kingship expectation attached to it. And we, we need to say, because Peter has said this, doesn't mean he fully understands it. Uh, he's going to be the one, uh, when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, who pulls his sword to guard his king. And Jesus says, no, my kingdom is not that kind of kingdom. I'm not calling you to pull a sword and to defend me. So, so there's going to be some learning yet to be done. But the confession becomes profound in the life of Peter. There, there are these kingly expectations. In fact, often in the pages of the Gospels, we've heard Jesus described as son of David. Son of David. Part of the kingly succession. The one who was promised would sit on David's throne through all eternity. But Peter brings with the word Messiah... He brings this kingly expectation together with the statement that you are the son of the living God. Again, perhaps in the, the context of, of Banias, Caesarea Philippi, as opposed to these dead, mute idols, as opposed to, to these, these things that people worship that really don't have the power to rescue them, who, who actually will use and abuse them, uh, rather than these dead idols, it's the living God that you are the son of. You are, you are the, the one who has been sent to us. Jesus, the God-man, in contrast to these idols around them, is son of the living God. 
come in fulfillment of historic promise. We say, well, what's in that confession? Like, what happens? Why is it significant that these words would be spoken out loud? Peter, Peter's confessed, he's spoken it out loud, his conviction that Jesus is God's son come in answer to the need of a savior, Messiah. And, and Jesus says that Peter's confession is going to open doors. He says down in verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We say, isn't that fascinating? This confession is going to open doors. It's going to create possibilities. We see that happening in the, in the book of Acts. Um, Dr. Luke tells us about the beginnings of the church and what continued to happen through the work of Jesus. And, and, and Peter becomes instrumental in the releasing of the Holy Spirit. He's there in the upper room giving leadership to the disciples when they wait, and the Holy Spirit, as promised, is poured out at Pentecost, and the church is born. But that's not all. Uh, Peter's the one who receives the vision of a sheet let down from heaven and, and then becomes instrumental in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles. Well, this is a new thing. This is a new thing. We talked about it last week. Matthew has been anticipating the fact that the church was going to be about more than Israel. This was going to be, he was, he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel for the entire world. And, and Peter is there. He becomes instrumental in, in seeing the Holy Spirit poured out on the Gentiles. And, and so we begin to see that Peter's confession of Christ, his, his declaration of who Jesus is, is instrumental. It opens doors. It creates possibilities. And that's true for you and I as well. We stand here because others have opened spiritual doors for us to walk through. They, they've, they've brought teaching, they've brought understanding. If it hadn't been for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit um, on the Gentiles, the majority of us, I, some of you maybe have some Jewish heritage, but the majority of us wouldn't be here because we don't have that Jewish pedigree, that Jewish heritage. The church became this embracing where the where the non-Jew was, was grafted into, was grafted into the olive tree to become part of the, the work that God was doing, this new people of God who are born out of who Jesus is. Peter's confession opens doors of possibility, and you and I are here because those doors opened. And you and I make our confession of Jesus, and in that declaration, we enable others to consider the possibility of who he is. Every time you give your testimony, such as we did this morning, every time at work something, an opportunity is raised where you can speak of the one whom you love, you open a door. You open a door where the Holy Spirit can begin to speak and work. Maybe he's already been working and speaking and you become another step in the chain of, of that person being confronted for themselves. Who do you say Jesus is? And it begins by you saying who you have come to understand Jesus is. Until we declare out loud who we know him to be, how will they hear how will they hear without a preacher? How will they understand without someone to live it out before them? 
here is who I understand him to be and what he's doing. Now, I want to invite you to make a confession together with me this morning. We often talk about confession in the sense of uh, my sin, which is true. Uh, the confession is powerful. It's important. Um, uh, the confession that we're going to make this morning is who is Jesus? There have been another, a number of confessions that the church has crafted over the years to, in order to try to clearly and accurately declare what we believe and what we know. The Apostles' Creed is one. It's a little shorter. This morning, I want to invite you to stand with me. We're going to actually recite together the Nicene Creed. It dates back to about 325 AD, and the church since then has been declaring these things to be true, and when we declare them, uh, they become powerful in us and through us. I want to invite you to even test these words out. Maybe you're going to go home and you're going to actually look it up. It's longer than that, just so you know. Boy, that's tiny, isn't it? Sorry about that. Um, Maybe you want to go home and and look it up. Nicene Creed. um, And and see what it's about. But but let's, let's let's us make this confession together this morning. Starting with the second line, we believe. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him, All things were made for us men and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. You can stay standing. I'm going to invite the worship team to come and and, uh, prepare. Let, Let me ask you, what impact should such a declaration have on our lives? When you come to the place where you, with Peter, can say, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Well, we can make a few observations from Peter. Uh, Jesus says, you are Petros. So so Simon is how we have come to know him. Uh, Petros in the Greek means rock. Bit of conversation about exactly what was meant there. Uh, But but Peter would become instrumental in God's program of the church. He would be used profoundly to help give leadership to the disciples. 
He is given a new identity in Christ. When you confess Jesus, you are given a 2.0 identity of who you are in Christ. It's not completely different from who you were in the terms of your character and personality. But, but you are become forgiven. Uh, you become one who is redeemed, brought, bought back to the Father. Uh, you are one who is endowed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and lives in us to equip us to become all that, that God would inter- determine us to be. Uh, you become, and if we come back to this text here, you become a, a living stone yourself. Uh, Peter wrote a letter to the churches, 1st, 2nd Peter, uh, 1st Peter chapter 2. Um, uh, he actually says something kind of interesting. When you think of the background of this, of, of Jesus declaring Peter to be the rock, and we, we come to what he says here. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, so he's describing Jesus as the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So, so Peter's bringing us together as living stones. We're this foundation. If you read on what Peter writes, he talks about this structure that's being built up to become the church. Uh, P- Jesus is this, the, the living stone, the cornerstone, the central stone uh, around which everything else is built, to which everything else is set as, as true and straight. But we are stones then with him in this. We join Peter in this. Our holy priesthood, he says, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter was declared by Jesus to be Petros. And then Peter names us together with him as living stones built upon Jesus. And your confession of Jesus, your acknowledgement of his name, the name that is above all other names, becomes now your identity. Your name. You are now Christ in. You are little Christ, Christian. Uh, You are in the body of Christ. All these metaphors we try to uh, get at in order to understand that which is is really beyond our ability to fully comprehend. But you are now living stone. Here we are together. Here we are together. You are key master to heaven for others. Through your confession, through that which you are willing, you you have the ability to open doors. You are a restrainer of the kingdom of darkness. That which is bound on earth will be bound in heaven. Uh, Don't have time to kind of really explore these, but we we begin to get an idea of what's going on when we talk about spiritual warfare. and What does it mean to pray that the people would encounter Jesus and respond? What does it mean to stand against the kingdom of darkness, to put on the spiritual armor, and and to take our stand against the devil and his schemes? these These become part of our function as the body of Christ together. This is who you are, because you've confessed Jesus to be who he is. And now it's his power and his strength which works through us.